You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. We're going to be in Philippians 3 today. If you have a Bible, would you go to Philippians chapter 3, please? And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, 12 through 16. And I've entitled this, A Mature Walk, A Mature Walk. I think it's something we all strive for. Uh, It's something that pleases the Lord. And I think Paul gives us the perfect description and example in these brief passages. Join with me in prayer before I start, please. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you did hold the rain up, that you let us gather. And there's nothing better, Lord, than the fellowship, the koinonia of the saints. And so let your word go out and have that target, that effective target. Let it plant seeds and bear good fruit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me read the verses, just four short verses, but let me read them. Philippians 3. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, 12 through 16 says exactly this. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Yes and amen. Thank you, Lord. That's exactly right. So Paul gives us really this great description of what a mature walk with the Lord looks like. Not only description, he'll give us helpful examples. Have your ear open to pragmatic examples that we can live out. But like anything in scripture, and especially Paul's writing, but anywhere in scripture, we need context. We need context what Paul's saying. So let's go to the two verses before verse 12. Let's read 10 and 11. This will give us an understanding of the direction or trajectory of Paul's message. It says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That is a passionate and powerful request. I mean, that is dead on. And consider this, when Paul wrote this, he'd had an intimate walk with the Lord for 30 years now. He knew what he was talking about. This is the same Paul, just so we understand the context of what he's saying. It's obvious. This is the same Paul that wrote the majority of the New Testament. This is the same Paul who gives us this flawless pedigree in the same chapter. Let me read this. In chapter three, look at verse four through through six. This is Paul talking about himself. Check this out. It's not as if Paul... Uh, you know, didn't know who he was or what he'd done or what he'd accomplished. Look at this. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcise on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, flawless. Check out what he says. He was flawless based on the law. He's, he's not embellishing that. He is. But look what he says. I, you know, and I think my point of this, what I want you to leave with is that Paul could have easily, or let's say those around him could have easily think Paul had reached this perfected status, this perfect walk, as if he did not have to exert any effort in his daily walk, like he's there, it's done, I've done all this. That's not it. Notice in verse 12, Paul's quick to confess that that simply is not the case. First part of verse 12 says this, Paul interjects, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. You see, I almost think Paul recognizes how this might have come across to the church in Philippi. You know, it would be kind of, you know, he's putting himself up here. No, Paul is stressing, Paul is stressing the incompleteness of his spiritual journey. This man with his pedigree, this man that was, I think the most spectacular Christian is stressing the incompleteness of a spiritual walk. That's good for us to know. You see, Paul's magnificent quest to walk and to know the Lord is only matched by his magnificent humility. It is the perfect combination. So that's the first key in this passage. If you're taking notes, the first key is this. To have a mature walk with the Lord Humility is a necessary ingredient. Humility is a necessary ingredient. And Paul, he's so brilliant, he's actually achieving another purpose here. If you look at the phrasing on how he says this, he's actually commenting on the bad theology of his opponents at the time. There was this battle back and forth, the apostle Paul, the true word of God, and a host of others that were preaching another message. So what he's saying is here, he's saying his enemies were preaching an actual state of salvation, if you can believe this, that brought literally all the blessings of heaven to earth. There was a state in which you could walk with the Lord that all the blessings of heaven were right here on earth. Basically, they claimed you could reach sinless heavenly perfection here on earth. It's not the case. They would say you can be healthy, you can have perfect health always, you can have every material blessing. You can walk this walk absolutely with no effort on your part if you possess this particular knowledge and this status. Paul's confession allows no such thinking, does it? Not at all. Here, Paul, again, I think it's the most spectacular Christian that's ever lived. He's confessing, no, folks, I've not arrived. I have not arrived. I in no way, shape, or form am perfect. And you know what the reality is? And some of you know this a mile away. The more we come to know Christ, the more we sense our need to grow in Christ. The more you come to know Christ, the more you sense you need to grow in him. And that's a good thing. See, when we think we're, we've arrived or wow, and I'm, you know, I've achieved this walk, spiritual stagnation sets in. That's not a good thing. Stagnation stinks. You don't wanna be around people 
uh, that are stagnating, let me just say that. Um, and let me say this. I, I, hope this, I hope this comforts you guys a little bit. It's not bad to have a humble dissatisfaction with your spiritual walk. It is not a bad thing. In fact, some of you that have walked with the Lord for a while will notice this cycle of dissatisfaction with your walk, then satisfaction, back to dissatisfaction. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Lord himself said that uh, to be spiritually dissatisfied is a blessed state, didn't he? In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Okay, let's look at the last half of verse 12. This is, this is critical. Last half of verse 12 says this. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you read this in the original Greek, and not that I know original Greek, but I can go on the computer and there's commentators that do know the original Greek. I'll tell you what, there is a sense of violence mixed in this, say, this statement. There's a sense of violence. Literally, here's how it reads. But if I pursue, if I indeed, I may seize it, because indeed I have been seized by Christ Jesus. It's the same verbiage that a military general might use in seizing his enemy. It's the same verbiage. It's very rough and tumble. And Paul is deliberately, deliberately drawing our attention to the rough and physical way that he was converted on the Damascus Road. Are you familiar with that? That wasn't an easy deal. Jesus knocks him to the ground, blinds him for three days, that was anything but easy. That was a violent conversion. And Paul is, is, is giving us this feeling that he's just, he's being transparent. This is his, it's to know Christ. He's, he's saying that I have such a strong, or Christ has such a strong, graceful grip on me that there's this violent stirring inside me to know him more. It was no joke. This was everything Paul was about. And, you know, if there's any doubt that he's, he's not claiming that he's arrived, look at the first part of verse 13. He's already said in verse 12, but look at verse 13. He gives us this other personal disclaimer to any supposed perfection. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Again, he says, no, I've not taken hold of it. And just in case anyone is wondering, this is not the lament of some overly sensitive Christian that has no idea of the progress he's made in Christ. That is not it. Paul is very aware. He's just stating the obvious that he has not obtained the state of perfection of the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? When you're resurrect from the dead, you will sin no more. I guarantee this is what Paul's talking about. He has not reached that state which some have claimed they'd reached. He was still very much in the game. Paul was going hard after it every day. And now Paul gives us, I think, in my opinion, a huge clue as to how to have a strong and mature walk. Look at the last half of verse 13. Look what he says here. 
He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. In this one sentence, Paul draws this metaphor of a runner in a race. That's what he's doing in the original language. He focuses on the past, forgetting what is behind, and he focuses on the future, straining forward. He gives this metaphor of a runner. Now, some of you have run or are familiar with track and field in the Olympics, and you know that there is a tremendous strategy to running. They're not just out there doing this. Their strategy, take, take the mile run four times around the track. If you have a good coach, one of the first things the coach will tell you is, you must not look back over your shoulder. Never do that. You see, you forget. If you're a successful runner, you need to forget what is behind you and look at the goal always. You don't look back over your shoulder. See, the slightest turn back for a runner, the slightest look over his shoulder, it breaks his rhythm. There's a momentary loss of this momentum and you lose precious time. You might even lose the race. That one look could cause you to lose the race. You see, and I just wanna be clear here, what Paul is not saying is that, you know, to have a mature walk, you somehow have this blanket amnesia over your past. He's not saying that, not for a second. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians or Romans, Paul has a very good memory. He names 30 different people, places and events in the life of the church. He's got a great memory. He's not saying that. What he's saying, dear friends, you need a special kind of forgetfulness, a special kind of forgetfulness, and the Lord will give you this. It's the kind that doesn't glance back to either look at great past achievements or bad failures, both. Both can sideline you, and I've seen it happen. Both can sideline you. You see, to rest on past achievements, don't you think that would have been easy for Paul? If he wanted to, at this time, after 30 years of walking with the Lord, don't you think it would have been extremely easy for him to rest on past achievements? I mean, you talk about achievements where faith was concerned. Paul was at the top of his game. He'd been beat for his faith. He'd been shipwrecked for his faith. He'd been betrayed for his faith. Danger upon danger. I'll say Paul's life was without parallel. If anyone could have done it, it was Paul. Paul, he was and still is the greatest theologian of the Christian church. Check that box. He was the missionary of missionaries. He was the missionary to the Gentiles, wasn't he? He successfully pastored and planted a string of churches that were thriving. Check that box. But Paul didn't choose to focus on that, did he? Not even a bit. You know why? He knew that would diminish his attention and focus on the future and lull him into a state of complacency. Isn't that easy? And I'm not saying, I've done it. I'll just say, it is a real pull sometimes when you've achieved, achieved something, you rest in it. Maybe as long as you can. I don't know, but it's always there. It's an easy place to go and take your foot off the gas. Also, notice this. Paul didn't lament or look back at his failures. And it's not as if Paul did not have failures. Dear friends, if you've read the Bible, Paul... Paul lets you know. I mean, just look at Romans 7 sometime. Uh, Paul had his share of things that he failed and struggled with. 
So here's what I want us to grab out of this. Today, what we take with us, because I cannot tell you how many folks that I meet with, and God bless them, but they have been stopped in their walk, in their, in their spiritual sanctification, because they have this, this morbid pleasure in looking back at the sin in their life. I don't know if it's for attention or sympathy, but it is not good, no way, no how. Yes, we learn from our mistakes, but do, we don't stare at them and recount them and recount them. I, I think for those of us that have the propensity to do that, remember this, that process, as I said, it stops you from growing, but more than that, I really think it grieves the Holy Spirit big time because we're failing to recognize the incomprehensible price that was paid on our behalf for forgiveness by God himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're looking back at that, you're discounting what God has done, plain and simple. Tough to look two places at once, isn't it? So if you're doing that, please don't, please don't. You know, and I mean, just from scripture, but it's easy, we foolishly forget where God says he takes our sin and separates it as far as the east is from the west. And guess what he says? I remember it no more. If God remembers it no more, who are we to resurrect that? I mean, really, who do we think we are? God's not doing it. Why are we doing it? I don't get it. Although I've done it. <laughs> On the other hand, but let's look at there. Have you ever hung around those Christians that are constantly reciting their achievements for the faith. It's the first and last thing off their mouth. It gets old real quick, doesn't it? Some of you that are my age remember a song by Bruce Springsteen called Glory Days, right? Anyway, I, I, I won't sing it, but it, it's perfect. Um, but again, when we're, when we're looking at our past achievements, yeah, good, I'm, I'm glad you did that, but that means you're not looking at what's ahead, you just, it's not, you don't. So we see how looking back can really slow us down or stop us. I think Paul made that clear. But what about this, guys? And I think some of us are here more than we'd like to admit. What about when life gets so hard and the world and everything in it seems so upside down and out of whack and going in the wrong direction you just kind of want to give up because you go, that's not going to change. There's no hope. What am I doing? This world is crazy. My personal circumstances aren't great. And I don't even want to turn the news on. It is nuts. Ha. Verse 14, Paul gives us the perfect prescription. He says this, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What do you think Paul was thinking about there, friends? What do you think he was thinking about? I can tell you, heaven. That's right, dear sister, without question. He was thinking of heaven. See, Paul's ultimate aspiration was not found in this life. He was thinking of heaven because that's where Jesus is. Can I tell you that? That's where Jesus is. And let's not forget, Paul knew exactly what he was talking about, talking about heaven, this man had been to the third heaven. Do you remember that? Paul had been to the third heaven. This is, this is where God resides and where Jesus is currently. In fact, do you remember, and here's what I get stoked about. I can't wrap my head around it, but I get stoked thinking about this. Paul said it was so glorious 
that it was so hard, it was uncomprehensible, so above anything that it was unlawful for him to speak about it. Didn't he say that? That doesn't mean he was breaking some kind of law to try to describe it, but it meant that words, our words fall so far short that it's wrong to attempt it. It does heaven an injustice. That was Paul's thinking to put us in the right place. And I really believe this was Paul's ultimate thinking of heaven, meditating on heaven. I think this was Paul's ultimate weapon against depression, against spiritual lethargy. Paul went there and he was quick to go there. And I'll say this, if you take nothing else away from this sermon today, I want you to take a renewed sense of what heaven is and that you're going there. You put those two things together, things change. Paul was very, very emphatic about how we should be training our thoughts. You don't have to go there, but in Colossians chapter three, verse one and two, listen to what he says. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why do you suppose that is? See, God created us and he knows us intimately. He created us with all our senses, our ability to feel pleasure. Do you know God created pleasure? God did. And he gave us the ability to feel that. You see, if we roll the, the clock back and the timeline, when Adam and Eve first walked this earth, it was radically different, way different than we see it today. You see what happened, I won't go into it, but when sin entered, through their transgression, a cycle of decay entered the world and something we call entropy. Entropy is going from order to disorder. This is what entered the world and this is what we're living in now. See, the first man and woman had this perfect environment to commune with God. It was perfect. God will restore that in the new heaven and the new earth. It's called theologically the eternal state where we are forever, God will restore that. Physical heaven, physical earth, God will restore that. And let me say, this so far exceeds anything or any experience we can have, did have, or will have here on earth. There's no pleasure, I don't care how good it is, that's comparable to the satisfaction you will feel with the fellowship of the Lord Jesus, there's nothing. And I think one reason, honestly, pragmatically, one reason that, that we don't think about this much, I think we sell heaven short. I think we don't think about it because we can't comprehend it. I get it, but we should cure that. We don't meditate on it because we can't comprehend it. Um, let me say this, we're not gonna be floating spirits, playing harps and singing 24 seven. That's not heaven, not a bit. I see nothing of that. Um, we will love and be loved to such a degree, not only by Jesus, but by those friends and family members that have gone before us. Let me say this, brothers and sisters, if you've accepted Lord, we're all gonna be together 100 years from now. We'll be talking, we'll be seeing each other. That's a good thing. Well, maybe for some, it's not a good thing. For me, it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> 
but really, we'll have this ultimate feeling of purpose and satisfaction. Why? Because we will be conducting the Lord's business in perfect harmony with his will. What a combination. Conducting the Lord's business in perfect harmony with his will. Yeah, amen. Hallelujah is absolutely right. See, our problems, dear friends, is not that we want too much. Can I say that? That's not our problem. On the contrary, we are content with way too little. We are content with way too little. We've been fooled by this world's temporary pleasures. I'm gonna say that again. We have been duped. We have been fooled by, these wor- by this world's temporary pleasure. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He hits it on the head. Listen to this. If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We like making mud pies. There's something way better waiting for us. And I I think along with that, overall, we sell God short on what he wants to give us. We, We have this sort of poverty mentality with God um, and just how generous and good he is. It reminds me of the professional golfer, Arnold Palmer. He was some years ago, but he was, I guess they say, he was one of the nicest guys ever, just a really, really nice guy. He was on a golf tour in Saudi Arabia, professional tour. And one of the Arab sheiks, very wealthy Arab sheiks, met him and asked him a personal favor. Would you play golf with me personally sometime? And Arnold said, yeah, I'll I'll do that. It was amazing, but he did. Well, when they finished golfing, this Arab sheik thought so much of him. He loved him. He's all, let me get you a gift. And Arnold's, no, I don't need anything. That's okay. It was great. I, I don't want any gift. The sheik was persistent. Let me get you something. And Arnold singer goes, uh, okay, how about a golf club? And the sheik says, I will have it delivered to your hotel tomorrow. So the next day rolls around and one of the sheik's employees knocks at the door and Arnold opens the door expecting to see a box, you know, a long box with a golf club. He gets this little envelope. He opens the envelope and it's a title deed to a golf course. The golf club <laughs> was where you play golf. This sheik gave him, gave him a golf club, okay, but it was a golf course. You know what I think? Sometimes the Lord with us, we think too little. God wants to bless us, man. He wants to bless us. So really, I mean, that's the truth. No Christian should be a pessimist. We should be realists. Not pessimists, but realists. We should be focused on the reality that we serve a gracious and sovereign God. And I'll say this. Because the reality of Christ's atoning sacrifice in which we have entrance to heaven, biblical realism is optimism. I think that's a t-shirt. Biblical realism is optimism. It's a truth. It's absolutely the truth. 
See, by meditating on heaven, it's, it's, I, want to, I want to be clear. It's not that we're eliminating the pain and hardships of earth, but we're alleviating them and we're putting them in proper perspective. Nothing can compare with that. You know you're going there. And I've said this before, but I'm gonna bore you for 15 seconds with something I, I, when I preached uh, on heaven, but it's the closest thing I can relate this to. I, I grew up in uh, Fullerton, California. It's about 15 minutes away from Anaheim. I was in sixth grade and grandma and grandpa Clay were coming to Commonwealth Elementary to pick me up, to take me to Disneyland at lunchtime. Let me tell you what, when I got to school at eight in the morning, I didn't care what the kids did. You could beat on me, whatever. I was going to Disneyland. That day could not be wrecked. That day just could not be wrecked. And that's small potatoes compared to what we have here. See, the Lord came to deliver us from fear and death. In Hebrews 2, verse uh, 2, 14, 15 says this, listen to this. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus came to get rid of that. See, Paul was very aware of this. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? I love that. Now, again, what I'm not saying, I am not saying that we should romanticize death or look forward to it. I'm not saying that, but if you have believed and given your life to the Lord Jesus, death is a gateway to never-ending pleasure. I'll just put it like that. That's what it is. And if you're anything like me, uh, I can get real myopic just looking down at my circumstances. There's nothing else. And if there's a hard situation, that's all I'm thinking about, looking at that. We need to train ourselves to look up Look up at the goal. Get out of just what's right in front of you and look up. It reminds me of this true story. A lady named Florence Chadwick in 1952 set out to swim from Catalina Island to the mainland here in California. She was an accomplished swimmer. She'd already uh, swam the English Channel back and forth. She knew what she was doing. But that morning in Catalina, it was cold and it was foggier than anything. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. She stepped in the water. The visibility was so bad, she couldn't even really make out. She had some boats trailing her to make sure she'd be okay. They were following her across the ocean. It was hard for her to, to see those. So she swam for 15 hours straight, 15 hours straight. She begged to be taken out of the water. She was done. Her mother was in one of the boats and said, no, listen, you're close, just keep going, just keep going, you'll get there, you'll get there, encouraging her, right? So she started swimming again, but not too long later, she's emotionally and physically exhausted and she just stopped swimming, she just stopped. They picked her up out of the boat and it wasn't until she boarded the boat that she saw I was only a half mile from the shore. She stopped a half mile at the news conference the next day. They asked her about that and she said, you know what, all I could see was the fog. That's all I could see. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Boy, that's us, that's us. Does the disappointment of this life, the discouragement, the fog of uncertainty, 
just blind us sometimes? Look to our final shore, look to our goal. I think this is what gave Paul the strength and the perspective to do exactly what he did, to press on toward the goal of heaven. It was a clear view of heaven. He wanted, as he says, to win that prize that God had called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. Guess what? God is calling us to the same prize, ladies and gentlemen. God is calling us right now to the same prize. Look up, look up. I'll finish with this. I'm almost done. Last two verses. Verse 15 and 16 says this. All of us then who are mature, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. So obvious here, Paul is affirming that he's just given us a great look at what a Christian mature walk looks like. He said it right there. And he's not being smug. Don't misunderstand. He's not being smug saying, well, if you disagree with me or don't think exactly like me, uh, God will teach you the hard way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, again, we got to go back uh, to verse 13 and 14, obviously before verse 15 and 16. If we agree with Paul about forgetting what lies behind and pushing on to go forward, looking at the ultimate prize, he's saying, if there's any flaw in your Christian understanding, your theology, God graciously will correct that. If you have the essentials right, God will correct anything else. That's a great promise. And notice in the last verse 16, I think it's critical, Paul includes himself in this, and I like this. He, you know, he's talking to his readers and he uses the word us instead of you. Let us live up to what we've already attained. Let us, we're still in this together. Let us live up to what we've already attained. He's saying you put into practice, listen to this, you put into practice the truth that you've already comprehended. And we've already comprehended, all of us, some degree of truth. Use that, put that into practice. And lastly, we are responsible for the truth that we currently possess. Not that we forget about that, but we live out the truth that we've possessed. So let me say this. This gives us the launching point today to where we need to go, both in our thinking, our spiritual life, and our physical life. What I'd like to do do we have members of the prayer team here? If so, would you come up? I'd like to have, I'd like to create a time that we can pray a little bit. Thank you so much. It was wonderful praying before. I, I thank the prayer team. You guys are, you guys are great. So as the prayer team comes up, let me finish like this. Let me say this. For those of you that have committed your life to Christ many years ago, you've been walking with him for a while, it's my sincere hope that Paul's words are confirming to you that you are indeed walking in a mature fashion. You're doing well. I fan that to flame. Take that, take that. The Spirit's given that to you. But maybe there's some of us that we're discouraged. Our current conditions aren't all that great. And the world and our personal life it just, it feels like we can't see through this fog of uncertainty. If that's you, come on up and pray. Let's pray. I want you to remember, like we come up and pray like this, it is so powerful. Look up.
for your redemption draws near. That's what Paul's talking about. We look up to heaven, your redemption draws near. Come up and pray, come pray with us. You know, I'll say this, the goal and prize of heaven, whether we believe it or not, and eternity with our Lord is just around the corner, just around the corner. I'm 63 and I tell you what, these last 10 years have been like that. Time is speeding up. We're right on the verge, not to mention the Lord could come back right now. I mean, we could look up, we could hear a trumpet blast and the Lord is here, right? I'm serious. So come on up and pray if there's anything that, hey, you wanna be with another brother and sister or pray about. Hey, and listen, maybe you're uncertain about your own destiny for sure. If you don't know that you know that you know the Lord, come on up, let's pray, let's fix that. Let's make heaven your eternal home. Or if you need encouragement, come on up. Or maybe uh, some of you are thinking, I wanna know more about what this guy preached on. I I think he's wrong about a few things. Come on up and talk to me. I love that, I love that. So Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for the Sunday. I thank you that your word is active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you pierce hearts with this. Pierce our mind, Lord God. Teach us, show us, draw us. Let us not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on up. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.